The Merchant of Venice by William Shakespeare. About this digital talking book. Navigation of this digital talking book is by the original tape, now referred to as a part, at the first navigation level. This digital talking book has been converted from the original tape masters and may contain tape side announcements, which should be ignored. Every effort has been made to ensure accurate conversion of this book. If errors are found, please report them to the Association for the Blind of Western Australia. This digital talking book was produced by the Association for the Blind of Western Australia in Perth, Western Australia. To support the production of this and other digital talking books, please contact the association on plus six one zero eight nine three double one eight two zero two, or by email to dtb at guidedogswa dot com dot au. Part one. In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. It wearies me. You say it wearies you, but how I caught it, found it, or came by it? What stuff it is made of? Whereof it is born? I am to learn, and such a want which sadness makes of me that I have much ado to know myself. Your mind is tossing on the ocean. There, where your argosies with portly sail, like seniors and rich burghers on the flood, or as it were the pageants of the sea, do overpeer the petty traffickers that curtsy to them, do them reverence as they fly by them with their woven wings. Believe me, sir, had I such venture forth, the better part of my affections would be with my hopes abroad. I should be still plucking the grass to know where sits the wind, peering in maps for ports and piers and roads. And every object that might make me fear misfortune to my ventures, out of doubt, would make me sad. My wind cooling my broth would blow me to an ague when I thought what harm a wind too great might do at sea. I should not see the sandy hourglass run, but I should think of shallows and of flats, and see my wealthy Andrew docked in sand, veiling her high top lower than her ribs to kiss her burial. Should I go to church and see the holy edifice of stone, and not bethink me straight of dangerous rocks, which, touching but my gentle vessel's side, would scatter all her spices on the stream, enrobe the roaring waters with my silks, and in a word, but even now worth this and now worth nothing, shall I have the thought to think on this, and shall I lack the thought that such a thing, bechanced, would make me sad? But tell not me, I know Antonio is sad to think upon his merchandise. Believe me, no. I thank my fortune for it. My ventures are not in one bottom trusted, nor to one place, nor is my whole estate upon the fortune of this present year. Therefore, my merchandise makes me not sad. Why then, you are in love? Fie, fie! Not in love, neither. Then let us say you are sad because you are not merry, and twere as easy for you to laugh and leap and say you are merry because you are not sad. Now, by two-headed Janus, nature hath framed strange fellows in her time. Some that will evermore peep through their eyes and laugh like parrots at a bagpiper. Another of such vinegar aspect that they'll not show their teeth in way of smile, though Nestor swear the jest be laughable. <laughs> Here comes Bassanio, your most noble kinsman, Graciano and Lorenzo. 
Fare ye well. We'll leave you now with better company. I would have stayed till I had made you merry if worthier friends had not prevented me. Your worth is very dear in my regard. I take it your own business calls on you, and you embrace the occasion to depart. Good morrow, my good lords. Good seniors, both. When shall we laugh? Say when. You grow exceeding strange, must it be so? We'll make our leisures to attend on yours. My lord Bassanio, since you have found Antonio, we too will leave you. But at dinner time, I pray you, have in mind where we must meet. I will not fail you. You look not well, Signor Antonio. You have too much respect upon the world. They lose it, but do buy it with much care. Believe me, you are marvelously changed. I hold the world, but as the world, Graziano. A stage where every man must play a part, and mine... A sad one. Let me play the fool. With mirth and laughter let old wrinkles come, and let my liver rather heat with wine than my heart cool with mortifying groans. Why should a man whose blood is warm within sit like his grandsire cut in alabaster, sleep when he wakes, and creep into the jaundice by being peevish? I tell thee what, Antonio, I love thee, and it is my love that speaks. There are a sort of men whose visages do cream and mantle like a standing pond, and do a willful stillness entertain, with purpose to be dressed in an opinion of wisdom, gravity, profound conceit, as who should say, I am Sir Oracle, and when I ope my lips, let no dog bark. Oh, my Antonio, I do know of these, that therefore only are reputed wise for saying nothing. When, I am very sure, if they should speak, would almost damn those ears which hearing them would call their brothers fools. I'll tell thee more of this another time. But fish not with this melancholy bait, for this fool gudgeon, this opinion. Come, good Lorenzo, fare ye well a while. I'll end my exhortation after dinner. Well, we will leave you then till dinner time. I must be one of these same dumb wise men, for Graciano never lets me speak. <laughs> well, keep me company but two years more, thou shalt not know the sound of thine own tongue. Fare you well. I'll grow a talker for this gear. Thanks, Iface, for silence is only commendable in a neat tongue dried, and a maid not bendable. <laughs> <laughs> is that anything now? Graciano speaks an infinite deal of nothing, more than any man in all Venice. His reasons are as two grains of wheat hid in two bushels of chaff. You shall seek all day ere you find them, and when you have them, they are not worth the search. Well, tell me now, what lady is the same to whom you swore a secret pilgrimage that you today promised to tell me of? It is not unknown to you, Antonio, how much I have disabled my estate by something showing a more swelling port than my faint means would grant continuance. Nor do I now make moan to be abridged from such a noble rate. But my chief care is to come fairly off from the great debts wherein my time something too prodigal hath left me gauged. To you, Antonio, I owe the most in money and in love, and from your love I have a warranty to unburthen all my plots and purposes how to get clear of all the debts I owe. I pray you, good Bassanio, let me know it. And if it stand, as you yourself still do, within the eye of honor, be assured... My purse, my person, my extremist means lie all unlocked to your occasions. In my school days, when I had lost one shaft, I shot his fellow the self-same flight the self-same way, with more advised watch to find the other fourth. And by adventuring both, I oft found both. I urge this childhood proof because what follows is pure innocence. I owe you much, and like a willful youth, that which I owe is lost. But if you please to shoot another arrow, that self-way which you did shoot the first, I do not doubt, as I will watch the aim, 
or to find both, or bring your latter hazard back again, and thankfully rest debtor for the first. You know me well, and herein spend but time to wind about my love with circumstance, and out of doubt you do me now more wrong in making question of my uttermost than if you had made waste of all I have. Then do but say to me what I should do, that in your knowledge may by me be done, and I am pressed unto it. Therefore, speak. In Belmont is a lady richly left, and she is fair, and fairer than that word of wondrous virtues. Sometimes from her eyes I did receive fair speechless messages. Her name is Portia, nothing undervalued to Cato's daughter, Brutus Portia. Nor is the wide world ignorant of her worth, for the four winds blow in from every coast renowned suitors, and her sunny locks hang on her temples like a golden fleece, which makes her seat of Belmont Caucus strand, and many Jasons come in quest of her. Oh, my Antonio, had I but the means to hold a rival place with one of them, I have a mind presages me such thrift that I should question this befortunate. Thou knowest that all my fortunes are at sea. Neither have I money nor commodity to raise a present sum. Therefore, go forth, try what my credit can in Venice too. That shall be racked even to the uttermost to furnish thee to Belmont. Do fair Portia. Go, presently inquire, and so will I, where money is, and I no question make to have it of my trust or for my sake. My little body is a weary of this great world. You would be sweet, madam, if your miseries were in the same abundance as your good fortunes are. And yet, for aught I see, they are as sick that surfeit with too much as they that starve with nothing. It is no mean happiness, therefore, to be seated in the mean. Superfluity comes sooner by white hairs, but competency lives longer. Good sentences and well pronounced. They would be better if well followed. If to do were as easy as to know what were good to do. Chapels had been churches, and poor men's cottages, princes' palaces. It is a good divine that follows his own instructions. I can easier teach twenty what were good to be done than be one of the twenty to follow mine own teaching. The brain may devise laws for the blood, but a hot temper leaps or a cold decree. Such a hair is madness the youth to skip o'er the meshes of good counsel, the cripple. But this reasoning is not in the fashion to choose me a husband. Oh, me, the word choose. I may neither choose whom I would nor refuse whom I dislike. So is the will of a living daughter curbed by the will of a dead father. Is it not hard, Nerissa, that I cannot choose one? nor refuse none. Your father was ever virtuous, and holy men at their death have good inspirations. Therefore the lottery that he hath devised in these three chests of gold, silver, and lead, whereof who chooses his meaning chooses you, will no doubt never be chosen by any rightly, but one whom you shall rightly love. But what warmth is there in your affection towards any of these princely suitors that are already come? I pray thee, overname them. And as thou namest them, I will describe them, and according to my description, level at my affection. First, there is the Neapolitan prince. Aye, that's a coat indeed. 
for he does nothing but talk of his horse. And he makes it a great appropriation to his own good parts that he can shoe him himself. I'm much afeard my lady, his mother, played false with a smith. Mm. Then is there the county palatine. He does nothing but frown, as who should say, and who will not have me choose. He hears merry tales and smiles not. I fear he will prove the weeping philosopher when he grows old, being so full of unmannerly sadness in his youth. I had rather be married to a death's head with a bone in his mouth than to either of these. God defend me from these two. How say you by the French lord, Monsieur Le Bon? God made him. Therefore let him pass for a man. <laughs> oh, in truth, I know it is a sin to be a mocker, but he... <laughs> Why, he hath a horse, better than the Neapolitans, a better bad habit of frowning than the Count Palatine. He is every man, in no man. <laughs> if a throstle sing, he falls straight at capering. He will fence with his own shadow. If I should marry him, I should marry twenty husbands. If he would despise me, I would forgive him. For if he love me to madness, I shall never requite him. What say you then to Falconbridge, the young baron of England? You know I say nothing to him, for he understands not me, nor I him. He has neither Latin, French, nor Italian, and you will come into the court and swear that I have a poor pennyworth in the English. He is a proper man's picture, but alas, who can converse with a dumb show? How oddly he is suited. I think he bought his doublet in Italy, his round hose in France, his bonnet in Germany, and his behaviour everywhere. What think you of the Scottish lord, his neighbour? That he had a neighbourly charity in him, for he borrowed a box of the ear of the Englishman and swore he would pay him again when he was able. I think the Frenchman became his surety and sealed under for another. How like you the young German, the Duke of Saxony's nephew? Very vilely in the morning when he is sober, most vilely in the afternoon when he is drunk. When he is best, he is a little worse than a man, and when he is worst, he is little better than a beast. And the worst fall that ever fell. I hope I shall make shift to go without him. If he should offer to choose and choose the right casket, you should refuse to perform your father's will if you should refuse to accept him. Therefore, for fear of the worst, I pray thee, set a deep glass of Rhenish wine on the contrary casket. For if the devil be within, and that temptation without, I know he will choose it. I will do anything, Nerissa, ere I will be married to a spanner. <laughs> you need not fear, lady, the having any of these laws. They have acquainted me with their determination, which is indeed to return to their home and to trouble you with no more suit. <sighs> unless you may be won by some other sort than your father's imposition, depending on the caskets. <laughs>